From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that's interested in boring beetles. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Emerald Ash Borer. Hey, Chad. How you doing, Mike? Are you ready for some boring discussion about invasive species? <laughs> I am. Boring beetles. Yeah. Yeah. Very clever. Well, out here in Oregon, we recently re- got the news that a new invasive species has shown up. And we've talked about invasive species a few times on the podcast. Um, right. We had lantern fireflies. Uh-huh. Lantern we had flies. murder hornets. Murder hornets. Uh-huh. Something of heaven, which was with the fireflies. Like the tree of heaven or something? Tree of like heaven. That? Yeah. And I've probably talked about invasive ants at some point. Argentinian ants. Yeah. Yeah. Love those. And then zebra mussels or something. I don't know if we actually oh, talked about it here. Maybe, yeah. Well, this emerald ash borer beetle is the name of this invasive species. And we just received the news that the emerald ash borer has been found in Oregon in a town called Forest Grove, which was, I don't know, oh. a handful of miles to the west of Portland. Portland, yeah. Apparently this guy who actually knows something about insects, he happens to work on invasive species himself, was picking up his kids from a day camp and noticed some ash trees that seemed to be struggling. And so it kind of like popped into his head that he ought to pay attention to see if any of these beetles were around. And about that time, one came and landed on his kid or something like that. And so, yeah, reported it and it was verified to be an emerald ash borer. And so here we are. And so that made a big splash in the news. And a lot of the depth of coverage is basically they're here. We're all doomed (laughs) and back to you. Yeah. And so I thought it would be an interesting thing to talk about the beetle and what it does, where it's from, why it's a problem. Okay. Yeah. So I vaguely remember that I've seen signs warning about emerald ash borers Mm -hmm. that if you go camping, they tell you, you have to buy our firewood because we don't want you to bring in. And I always thought it was just a marketing ploy so that we would buy their own, (laughs) their firewood. But I've seen it consistently enough that I eventually was like, okay, well, it must be a real thing. Yeah. That's just general good practice for a lot of reasons for emerald ash borer, but for lots of other kinds of pest species that might get transported around by transporting firewood around. Mm. And so there are a lot of other kinds of pest species, including some pest beetle species that you wouldn't want to facilitate their dispersal by moving them around with firewood. So yeah, you don't, you don't want to uh, transport firewood dozens to hundreds of miles or across state lines or anything like that. If you're going to have your campfire, you know, within a handful of miles of where you cut down the tree, you're probably okay. Mm. But you wouldn't want to haul your firewood a distance greater than anything that might be living in it would be able to disperse naturally. So Mm. we'll get to this later, but that's probably the single thing that people can do to help the easiest, right? Mm -hmm. Is don't move firewood around. Well, I, we normally touch helpful things like that at the end of the episode. Right. And it sounds like you're planning to do that again yeah. today, but yeah, no, no public nope. service right there, right at the beginning. Yeah, that's that's the TLDR version, right? So, <laughs> All right. So tell me about emerald ash borers. Okay. Understanding the emerald ash borer and why we shouldn't be moving firewood around, understanding their life history will help us understand why that's the case. They're members of this beetle family called the Buprestidae, and these are the metallic boring beetles metallic because they have this really beautiful shimmery coloration pattern Mm -hmm. and they are called boring beetles not because they drone on and on and on about things that nobody's interested in (laughs) (laughs) but because for most species 
the larvae develop by boring into the bark or stems of a plant, typically a tree, and then munching away on the inside of the tree in some way. Mm. And this can cause a certain amount of damage to a tree that gets infested. But in most cases, the beetles from an area and the trees that they feed upon have such a long coevolutionary history that the beetle is able to make a living, but the tree is resistant enough that it does a little bit of damage, but it doesn't kill off the tree. Right. So we're talking about invasive species. So anytime we're talking about that, we're talking about a plant or an animal that is normally found elsewhere on the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. and has co-evolved with other animals and plants around where it normally is. And so they're used to each other. They, rather than having it just kill it, somehow they've figured out a way to kind of coexist and, and survive. Right. And the issue with the invasive species part is that these have been transported somehow mm-hmm. and are now interacting with, in this case, they're act- interacting with ash trees in this area, but these ash trees have never seen that particular pest and so are, are not equipped to deal with it. So they can actually just die from the interaction. Exactly. And from the beetle's perspective, it's just this huge continent-sized buffet of minimally defended food source. Hmm. And so the populations of the beetles has exploded and expanded. And so their life cycle is something like this. The adults are active for about a month, about this time of year. And so if you were in a location where they're present, you would actually see them flying around, like especially up in the canopies of ash trees. And the females and males will be mating and the females will lay eggs. And then that's basically it for the adults. They're around for about a month or so. And those eggs laid on the bark, like the fissures in the bark of an ash tree, and they'll hatch out and they'll burrow through the bark. And once you get past the bark of a branch or the trunk of a tree, then you start getting into what's called the phloem. Have we ever talked about like what phloem does in a plant? Do you remember? Yeah, it's the water that is taking up in the roots Mm -hmm. are pushed up through the trunk and through the the branches out to the leaves and so forth, right? And And, and they have some sugars in them and and stuff. Right. And so actually you've got two things going on that you just described here. The, The first thing of the water being drawn up from the roots, that is taking place in the xylem. Ah, okay. And then, as you said, the other thing that's getting transported around the sugars, remember that the product of photosynthesis is converting carbon dioxide into dissolved sugars inside the leaf. And then that has to get transported elsewhere. That's accomplished in the phloem. This is how we get like maple syrup. Exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So when somebody like jabs that little spigot through the trunk of a maple tree, Mm -hmm. it goes just deep enough so that the inside part is in the phloem where all that sugary stuff is moving. And so you can imagine it's Oh, so you don't milk the tree. You just, you stab it. Right, right. Yeah. And it's living tissue and it's got a whole bunch of sugar in it. And so these beetles just basically munch their way through the phloem and they leave this sort of characteristic little, if you peel the bark back and you Mm -hmm. see sort of like an S-shaped little path chewed through the phloem, that's one of the indicators of emerald ash borer. Are they all sort of emanating from one spot? Is it like a sack of eggs or is it one egg at a time that the adults like plant it here and then there and there and there? Or is it all in one spot? Yeah, I get what you're saying. It's um, so an individual female will lay dozens to into the hundreds of eggs, which as far as insects go is maybe a little bit on the low side. I mean, there are some insects that will lay thousands to 
many thousands of eggs. Hmm. I mean, I'm coming from a background in social insects where you've got colonies of tens of thousands to millions. Uh So maybe I'm a little bit biased in how I think about the number of eggs that a female can lay. But in this case, it's (laughs) dozens to hundreds. Um, Like hundreds. Come on. Yeah. Slacker. Um, (laughs) And she'll just sort of like move along and kind of tuck these into the cracks in the bark. So it's not like an egg mass, you know, like you can buy egg masses for praying mantises or something like that. And it's like this little wad of stuff, but it's not like that. It's Mm. like, and these eggs are really, really tiny. So they're really hard to see. They're like smaller than a period on a paper. So looking for eggs is hard to do. Okay. So then They spend about the next 10 months, end of the summer, all through the fall, all through the winter, feeding the larvae do. And then in mid to late spring, they pupate, spend about a month converting from a larva to an adult. And then about late spring, early summer, the adults bore their way out through the bark again and exit the tree and then fly away, disperse, Mm -hmm. mate, lay eggs again and die. And so that's the life cycle. And that's a pretty typical life cycle for one of these metallic boring beetles. Okay. There's been some research on how far they disperse. So female average flight distances are about three kilometers, but maybe up to 10 miles if need be. And so, you know, they spread, but it's not like this really rapid spread, Mm. right? So it's fairly slow spread if that was all that was happening. Mm-hmm. And also I'm interested in if one tree dies just from one year infestation mm-hmm. or if it, you know, they have to be infested multiple times to, to ultimately kill them off. That's a good question. It probably has to do with the severity of the infestation for an individual tree. Mm-hmm. But what happens is the larval beetles, if you get enough of them in there, they will eat the phloem as well as the cambium, which is the layer of living tissue that produces new phloem. Mm. And if the cambium is damaged, then the tree loses the capacity to replace that phloem. And a certain amount of that just under the bark, you know, sort of off on one side of the tree is is not a big deal. A tree can withstand that, right? Mm. But if you have enough larvae in there that it does it all the way around the circumference of the trunk of the tree, then suddenly the top half of the tree is cut off from the bottom half of the tree. Oh, okay. That's called girdling. Mm -hmm. And you can kill a tree by taking a knife and scoring around the trunk. If you go deep enough and you Hmm. cut all of the phloem, you've girdled the tree. And so nothing can get from the bottom of the tree up to the top of the tree. No phloem can get from the bottom of the tree up to the top of the tree. Wait, I, I was assuming that the phloem was flowing down from the leaves after photosynthesis. It, it depends on the time of year. Ah, okay. And so all through the summer and when the leaves are actively photosynthesizing, you're right. That surplus sugar that the leaves are making is flowing down the branches to the trunk. And then some portion of it will flow down and be stored in the roots. Mm. And then some portion of it might flow up to the new growing stems or flowers or fruits. Mm -hmm. But in this case, and for other deciduous trees, they lose their leaves in the fall. And then the following spring, all of that new growth, new leaves, many trees will put out flowers early in the spring before they even have leaves. All of that is fueled by that stored sugar in the roots. Ah, okay. 
Okay. Huh. And I never so, thought so trees are sort of storing for the winter. Exactly. So they're they're collecting all this energy, getting it all ready, shoving it down into the root system, I assume. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then in the spring, when they're getting ready to make new leaves and all that stuff, that takes energy. And so they're pushing it back up there in order to get it started again. Yeah, in order to grow. And so for that reason, the direction that the phloem sap is flowing within the phloem, it depends on the time of year. Hmm. And so one of the first symptoms that you see is the upper parts of the tree will start to die. Ah, okay. So let's see what else. So where are these from? So they are native to Eastern Asia. So if you think of sort of like Russia, Mongolia, Eastern China, over to Korea and into Japan, that's Hmm. their native range. Mm -hmm. And ash trees as a genus are distributed all throughout the old world and new world temperate zone. So there are definitely ash trees there as well. It's just the ash trees in this part of Eastern Asia have this long evolutionary history with this particular beetle, and they have a certain amount of resistance or tolerance to them. In their native range, they have a number of parasitoids and parasites and pathogenic disease-causing organisms. And one of the things that commonly happens for invasive species is when they get transported elsewhere, often they leave behind all of those natural enemies. Uh, And initially that appeared to have been the case here for the emerald ash borer is they left behind their parasitoids and diseases. Hmm. So I I know I keep just derailing us here, but I never hear about it going the other way, most likely because I'm I'm not living the other place and (laughs) we care less. But does that happen going the other way? Yeah, I mean, I would imagine so. I mean, that's a great point. You know about the invasive species where you are because they're things that aren't native to where you are. All right. So they originated in East Asia, Russia Uh and so forth. How did they first get over here? It is probably the case that they made their way to the United States and Canada in shipping materials from China, like maybe a wood shipping crate or wood pallets or something like that, that were built using wood that had larvae buried in there somehow. That is an extremely common way for invasive species to be moved around is through Hmm. international commerce like that. And so they were first detected in the Windsor, Ontario and Detroit, Michigan area in 2002. Hmm. And then ever since 2002, they have been slowly, steadily spreading from that region of Eastern Michigan. And if you look at a map of its distribution through time, you see two effects going on. One is you see sort of the ring of where it's found getting ever bigger and ever bigger. But then also you see these little counties will like pop up you know, dozens to hundreds of miles Hmm. outside that sort of slowly expanding ring. Mm -hmm. And that's called jump dispersal, where something makes a really big long distance leap from where it was born to where it lives out its life and mates and and lays eggs. And as I said, on their own, these things can maybe move up to 10 miles in total. Mm -hmm. And so in order to make those kinds of long distance dispersals, that takes human assistance. Hmm. And so our own moving around to firewood or packing crates or nursery stock is another really good example of how these things get moved around in Columbus, Ohio. I think it was the city of Columbus, maybe had received a whole bunch of ash trees from a nursery Ah. to plant in their city, right? 
part of their urban forestry. And they discovered that they were all totally infested with emerald ash borers. Hmm. <laughs> so that's another way is nursery stock. Hmm. So anyway, by now they've made it to 30 plus states in the United States. Wow. And it's also been spreading in Canada as well. Basically, it's a death sentence when an ash tree gets infested by them. And they've killed probably at least 50 to 60 million ash trees so far. Wow. And eradication is a lost cause. We're not going to get rid of these things. Hmm. And so that kind of shifts how you have to think about it into limiting the spread, trying to find solutions that preserve ash trees that are resistant, and then also trying to develop strategies for replacing the ecosystem services of the ash trees that are going to be lost. All right. So how do you know if it's been infested? Yeah, this is an important one. And people who live, listeners who live in the Eastern United States might already have experience with picking these out. But for those of us here in Oregon, this is going to be our first encounter with the consequences of emerald ash borer. And so being able to recognize the signs of what an infested ash tree look like are probably going to be the first thing that puts it on our radar to know that this is a tree that I should pay attention to and, and do some surveying or sampling again. Because like I said, the adults are only around for about a month. And if you're not there at the right time, you're not going to see the adults. And so what's happening with the tree is probably going to be the most apparent thing for most people. And so typically what happens is the top of the tree starts to die back and kind of starts dying from the top down. And so if you see an ash tree that has a bunch of branches without leaves in the top, and then maybe halfway down the tree, there's still some green leaves and stuff that's of concern. And then maybe the next year there'll be even more of the tree is dead and so on. This is because it's cutting off the phloem from getting all the way up to the top of the tree. That's right. Got it. Okay. Yep. And then another thing that commonly happens is a whole bunch of new young stems will start sprouting from low down on the trunk. And they've got this energy and there's they can't get to the top. So they just start right. sprouting where they can. Okay. Right. And so like sort of embedded underneath the bark are these tiny little bits of bud tissue that start producing new stems. And that is an, a strategy that allows the plant to still harvest at least some sunlight energy because it's producing stems with leaves and stuff. Yeah. But it, it looks totally weird. Because, you know, you've got this big, dead, mostly dead tree with just like this green, bushy growth around the trunk at the hmm. bottom. So that's one sign. The adults feed on the leaves, but they don't do a whole ton of damage. It's not the kind of thing that you would be able to see very easily from the ground, you know, if the branches are way up in the air. But if there is like some low down leaf tissue, the feeding damage looks like little circular notches chewed out of the margin of the leaf. And... <laughs> When they make their way out of the trunk to disperse away from where they were a larva, they chew these little holes, these little exit holes. And so if you look closely at the trunk, you might see a bunch of tiny little holes. And that's a fairly common thing to see because there are a lot of different kinds of beetles that do this sort of thing. And when the larvae pupate into adults, they all do this kind of thing. But most other beetles, that little exit hole is going to be mostly circular. Mm -hmm. And the exit holes that emerald ash borers make are a little bit more D-shaped. 
like a capital letter D. Hmm. They're not going to be like perfectly D, you know, maybe a little jagged. And it might not be the case that all of them look like a perfect D shape, but they do have this characteristic, you know, more flat on one side and then more rounded on the other side, Vexit hole. And we should say that you did find some brochures and we'll post those up on our Facebook page if people want to see what these things look like. Yeah, that's a good idea. And so if you notice those things and it's like a tree on your own property and you have, or you have permission to do this, don't do this to a tree that's not your own. (laughs) One thing you can do is peel back some of the bark and underneath the bark, you might actually see the feeding galleries of the larvae. And Mm. then you'll know if you've got them for sure. They kind of make these winding S-shaped little feeding tracks where they're moving through the phloem and eating it. And then out the backside, they're leaving their feces called frass. And Mm. so it kind of looks like this little granular curving back and forth feeding signs. And by the time you start to see the exit holes, it's probably the case that that tree has been producing adults that have dispersed away from it. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of too late. So for that reason, I actually have been noticing around here some traps. Hmm. And so that is in hopes of trying to detect their arrival as early as possible so that you can take action and try to protect as many of the local trees as you can, if you wish to. Okay. So that those are the consequences for the tree. And it turns out that ash trees are actually ecologically pretty important. Okay. The ash trees live in riparian corridors. They do really well in pretty soggy kind of wetland soil, soil that doesn't drain very well. And so they're very common along stream sides, rivers, creeks, things like that. And this also happens to be the kind of habitat where a lot of our charismatic fish live. So things like salmon and steelhead. One of the things that is most challenging for those fish right now is the water temperature, because in a lot of places, the forest has been cut back. And so it's rather than a stream flowing underneath a canopy that kind of keeps the water cool. Mm -hmm. It's a stream flowing through, say, agricultural land, and Uh. the water gets really warm. And that's one of the bigger challenges right now for those kinds of fish is they actually need cooler stream waters. Hmm. And so there's been a push to try to conserve forested corridors along riparian zones for the benefit of these different fish species. Well, if all of those ash trees are going to be dying now, then that's going to have the effect of increasing the water temperature. Hmm. And so that'll that'll affect the salmon population that'll affect other things that feed on on those fish. That's right. Including humans, but also bears. Yeah, that is one way that it's going to change the whole ecosystem. Another thing that it's going to do is the loss of those trees is going to change how the water moves through those systems. The roots of those trees help anchor the banks and all of that soil in place. Mm and prevents a lot of erosion. And then third, it's going to open up territory that probably shrubby invasive species are going to colonize. It'll probably be taken over by Himalayan blackberry or something like that. Hmm. Yeah. And that's impossible to get rid of once that sets in too. <laughs> just, yeah, just about. Hmm. So this tiny little beetle, but they have these huge ecosystem effects over large continental scale distributions. Well, thanks for the depressing news. 
Yeah, right. Um, this episode yeah. was recorded on the... <laughs> Wait, is, is there anything we can do? Well, yeah, there, there are some strategies that we can take. This is not going to be a situation of stop the tide and turn it back or something, right? This is going to be more of a, of a situation of slowing the spread and mediating the damage and strategies to adapt to what's coming because it's coming. And fortunately, scientists in the West Coast, including in Oregon, have known that it's coming. It's just a matter of time before it gets here. And one of the things that researchers have been doing for a while is at first, they have been looking for populations of Oregon ash trees that might have natural tolerance with the idea that if you could find trees that were had a little bit more natural resistance to the beetle, that once the EAB has run through and basically killed off all of the ash trees, then reforesting these areas with ash trees could be done from these stocks that have a little bit more natural tolerance or resistance to the beetles. Okay. And the second thing is that people have been collecting as many seeds as they can from across the entire range to try to capture the genetic diversity of the Oregon ash trees, which exist, by the way, from like British Columbia down through Washington, Oregon, and into the northern half of California. And so some of these have been deep frozen at seed repositories for use at some later date. It turns out that there are some pesticides that you can apply to a tree that will prevent it from being infested by emerald ash borer, but you have to do it. Some methods you have to do every year, but it's like a commitment that these trees in our downtown space or these trees in our local park, as a city, we've decided we're going to try to save these trees. Mm -hmm. And so what you're committing to is a pesticide application in perpetuity. Hmm. And so there might be some communities that decide that it's worth it. And other communities might make the decision that once their traps start detecting beetles that, okay, it's time to start thinning out our ash trees and replanting with something else. Hmm. That's kind of sad to contemplate, but that's the situation we're in. Hmm. And there's been a lot of research to try to figure out ways to kill off or suppress the population of the emerald ash borer. And one of the things that I talked about at the top is how invasive species often will escape from their natural enemies during the invasion process. And so a lot of research has gone into trying to determine if there are any things that keep the population of emerald ash borers in check in their native range. And might those be good candidates here that could do the same thing? And so there's been a lot of research on parasitoids. A parasitoid is basically, it is a kind of parasite where the female lays eggs in the host. And then it's the larva that develops by consuming the host. Gross. Does that make sense? So it's it's a little bit different from like a straight up parasite, right? So like a tick is a good example of a parasite. The tick itself feeds on you. And then once Yeah, but this is like the Sigourney Weaver movie of aliens. That's, that's a great point. Yeah. Aliens are parasitoids. I'd never thought about that way, but you're right. Well done. You're welcome. You can use that in your <laughs> classes now. I will. <laughs> and so there are parasitoids in the native range. Some of them attack the egg stage. Some of them attack the larval stage. And some of those have actually been researched and released into the eastern part of the United States. They have kind of managed to maintain sort of a 
a smallish population, but they haven't really been successful at making much of a dent hmm. in the emerald ash borer population in the eastern United States. All right. So what what can I do then? Well, for most people, probably the first thing to do is to know what an ash tree looks like, right? I mean, that sounds obvious, but... Well, I mean, when you bring it up, I don't, I would not be able to identify that. No. Right. So we'll put up on Facebook some pictures of what ash leaves look like. Knowing what an ash tree looks like would be thing number one. And and then second, just once you like know where the ash trees are in your neighborhood, just noticing some of the signs of what a struggling ash tree looks like. Uh Take a walk in your neighborhood, note the ash trees, and then over the next several springs, go on the same walk and just see if any of those trees look like the tops of the crowns are dying back Hmm. and some of those other symptoms of of infestation. If you do notice those kinds of things, then you should take pictures, whip out your camera phone, take a picture. If you do happen to notice a beetle, take a picture of the beetle or better yet, capture the beetle and throw it in the freezer so that you have a record of the specimen. Hmm. But I suppose the main thing is that if you do think that you have something that's worth reporting, that you have to also be able to report along with it some sort of verifiable, actionable information. It, okay. it can't just be, you know, I saw a green bug at such and such a location. In order for it to make sense for ODA and ODF to dedicate resources to investigating that particular report, Uh there has to be something to go on because that right now they just have so many reports that they have to sort of triage them to the ones that there's actual actionable information. So, Hmm. so to help with the triage, triage, Mm -hmm. if somebody suspects something, they should take pictures and send them to Chad Tilburg (laughs) (laughs) and he can help you out. Oh no, no, I, I'm, I'm not the authority here, Mike. Ah, all right. Yeah. But okay. so th- anyway, this this is one of those situations where we're at the very front end of this uncertain situation and what the course of it looks like is going to kind of depend on how well we're able to take certain steps to slow the spread. And um, hmm. states like Washington and California are also very interested in us slowing the spread as well. Because, I mean, now that it's out here on the West Coast, it's only a matter of time before it makes its way down there and up there as well. Well, thank you, Chad. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you do these episodes on the space telescope. And oh, my gosh, (laughs) the universe. Isn't it amazing? And I research these episodes on like, well, we're screwed again. Yeah. Sorry. All right. I'll, I'll try to come up with something about how we're screwed. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> can't you, can't you do an episode of like about a comet hitting the planet or something like that? I mean, we'll, we'll think on that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield university. Rotor or take a rotor theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you are a sadist, but if you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available while there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find podcast if you have ideas for topics email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com all one word all lowercase until next time thanks for listening